One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the latest tactical and strategic news from Ukraine, talk about Boris Johnson's recent trip to the Ukrainian capital, and examine the potential ramifications of the ongoing French presidential election. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. Just to say, for our regular listeners, our defence and security editor Dominic Nichols is away this week. It's April the 11th, day 47. And today I'm joined by assistant common editors Francis Sternley and Olivia Utley and Mutaz Ahmed. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. It's been uh, an eventful couple of days um, for f- various different reasons. And I think the best way to break it down is into sort of military, tactical and strategic, and then the diplomatic, which of course in- in- involves Boris Johnson visiting Kiev, amongst other things. Um, so in terms of the, the, the tactical picture, much has been made, of course, of the uh, renewed attack on the Donbass by Russia um, in the eastern part of Ukraine. And it seems that almost all of the, the war focus is now there and in uh, Mariupol. Uh, Russia has suffered considerably heavy losses, so much so that it is now said to be calling up soldiers who've been retired for more than a decade, according to Western intelligence. Um, not only that, since Russian forces withdrew from towns around Kiev. Ukrainian investigators have been working rapidly to document evidence of war crimes, of which there's now, obviously, we've, we've seen numerous examples of, of terrible atrocities that appear to have been committed um, in, in areas all around Kiev and, and, and no doubt elsewhere. On, the, on that theme, Mariupol, um, which is obviously a, a city that has been besieged now by the Russians for several weeks, has been, uh, in, in the words of President Zelensky, has 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 been facing such a, a an aggressive onslaught that now he's saying that tens of thousands of of people have been have been killed there. Of course, that has not been independently verified, but even so, if that were true, that is of course a very very significant and tragic loss indeed. Um, just to put that into some historical. Con- 
perspective for for British listeners, um, throughout the entirety of the Second World War, there were around a hundred thousand citizens lost um, in in Britain um, to German air raids and sinking of ships, etc. Now that was a war that lasted for six years. This is one that has mattered, lasted only a matter of weeks, and so this is truly a, a an enormous um, loss, if true. Um, for for the Ukrainian people. Um, Just a few other things as well. Russian forces um, are said to be potentially considering to be using phosphorus munitions in Donetsk um, as part of this renewed offensive. Um, And that is believed part of a even more vicious strategy being conducted by the general who was involved in the bombing of Syrian cities um, several years ago. The sort of devastation and chemical weapons um, that were used there um, are, are were very much part of his strategy of, 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 of devastation. And there is concern that that's going to be um, the in the sort of tactical and military toolkit um, being deployed there in those regions. So um, lots to be concerned about. And just lastly, I would just comment on on a um, a couple of other interesting things in the sort of more diplomatic military space, which is that NATO have said that they will be drawing up plans to deploy a full-scale military force on its border in an effect to combat Russian aggression. Um, This is, of course, very significant because up until now, um, NATO forces in countries like Estonia um, and Latvia have been uh, mostly there just as a deterrent. They've been sort of minor bases, peacekeeping missions almost. Um, but now, of course, they are they are building up um, a, a military capacity to be able to resist an actual Russian invasion. Um, clearly, there is enough concern that that uh, the Russia may attempt to do that um, in the, in the long, as part of a long term strategy that the NATO officials, um, world leaders, believe that it is beneficial for them to to have a full scale military force. So quite cons- quite a concern considerable and eventful couple of days since we lasted this podcast and, and ones that I think will have ramifications um, for, for days and weeks to come. Mutaz Ahmed. Uh, I, I think Francis is, is, of course, right about the, the redeployment to the east. It's now in, in full swing, basically. You're seeing columns of tanks. Um, and the Russians will be hoping um, not just to fight westwards from, from the east, but to encircle some of the troops uh, in the east. And uh, as we know, that the there are battalions in eastern Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian battalions that have been there for a very long time, and some of them are the most highly trained soldiers that the Ukrainians have. Uh, so if they're encircled or cut off from the rest of the Ukrainian army, then of course that, that'll be a very serious problem. The, the war is going to enter a new stage now. Um, it's going to be more violent. Um, uh, the conditions for Russian tanks in the east, I think, are slightly better. Um, uh, the, the Russians will have several advantages that they didn't have in the suburbs of Kiev. And so the Ukrainians are going to need lots and lots of support. Um, but there, there, there is a chance that... So, so, so you know, this move means that, that Russia... It's an attempt by Russia to regain the initiative, basically. But there is a chance that Ukraine can, can hold on to the momentum it's, it's, it's gathered already um, and, and actually push Russia back to uh, uh, Donetsk and, and Luhansk, um, um, forbidding them from taking the whole of Donbass. And there was an interesting report out recently from the Institute for the Study of War in the United States that said there's a chance for Ukraine to regain the whole of the Donbass. Um, so 
the, the war's entering a new stage. It's as unpredictable as ever. Um, but it, it, one thing's for sure, it's, it's about to get much more violent. Um, there, there are fewer civilians to deal with, um, uh, but it's, it's going to be uh, a much uh, dirtier army-on-army uh, army campaign. Olivia Utley. Yeah, and and as we um, as we said in, in our leader this morning, I think that the scenarios have got to be avoided is is if if control of the coastline, um, and that means that 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 would Ukraine would be cut off from the Black Sea, which would make it impossible to trade. So I think you know we've got all these feel good stories. You, you see Boris Johnson in Kiev, and it is fantastic considering where we were, you know, two weeks ago. That Kiev is now safe enough to visit, um, but we shouldn't get lulled into a sort of full sense of security because you know as as Francis and, and Moutas have said, the conditions um, in this next phase of the war are actually quite favourable to the Russian army. Francis. I think it's absolutely true um, what both Olivia and Moutas are saying, that this war is now going to um, e- escalate into a more traditional um, style of warfare of, of tanks and tanks and infantry on infantry. And of course, President Zelensky has has made that remarks himself. He said that some of the scenes that we will see in the Donbass will resemble those in the Second World War. Um but I would say as well that there are certain things, as I've commented before on this podcast, that would fa- play in favour of the Ukrainians, which is that, of course, it's been winter, the, gra- the, ha- the ha- ground has been harder, um, icier. That does make it easier, in theory at least, um, for tanks and heavy weaponry to be utilised. That is going to change as the weather turns into spring. These things, the, um, the pathways, the roads are going to become much muddier. That makes it much more challenging for, for the use of heavy weaponry. And not only that, there's going to be a renewed um, with the uh, expansion of uh, uh, sort of you know, spring-like weather into, in, in terms of foliage and, uh, and hedgerows and things like that. That makes it much easier for, um, for, for guerrilla-style strategies in certain areas as well, which um, if it's the Russians who are making the initial offensive, which is what we would predict, that there will be an initial offensive um, from the Russians, which we, the Ukrainians will resist, and then there will be a counterattack from the Ukrainians, like we saw in the first phase of the war, um, then that would be favourable for defensive warfare, these, these hedgerows rows and foliage and, and muddy um, muddy roads. So I think it's too early to say wh- who is advantaged um, at this stage of the conflict. But I think you have to say, given everything that has occurred um, in these past few weeks, that the momentum, at least uh, diplomatically, militarily, is with the Ukrainian people and, and with President Zelensky. Just before we move on to talking about Boris Johnson's visit to, to Kiev, there was a fascinating piece in, 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 in the paper on how on the British involvement in training the Ukrainian army and and detailing how the, the British trainers and and soldiers go in and, and and almost remade or added so much to the Ukrainian capacity to defend their country. Um, Francis, could you tell us about it? What what exactly did the Brits do? So um, Dominic Nichols has written a really fascinating piece for our paper about um, the years leading up to the conflict so far. Um, Of course, many will remember who are listening the annexation of Crimea by the Russians um, in 2014 and the sort of shockwaves that that sent. And at the time, the feeling was that really um, Ukraine was was clearly a country that was not capable of of defending itself, given the the scale of the um, of the defeat there and and the the seizure of Crimea and, and and, and these uh, independent regions later, um, Dolesk and Lhansk, by uh, rebels, um, Russian-backed rebels, and perhaps, um, so we believe, also some Russian soldiers in disguise. Um, but that has was fundamentally changed by, um, and this is what Dominic uh, writes about, 
That was fundamentally changed by um, Britain and other world leaders sending military advisors in the years after um, the invasion to effectively rebuild the Ukrainian army. And um, in this piece, uh, uh, Dominic documents the the chronology of this um, and 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 effectively how we were we were providing. Um, substantial uh, military training, um, ad- advice um, on on what to do in certain military scenarios of Russian invasions, and it would appear that that has, of course, very much uh, um, paid off in in this conflict. That there has been an essential renaissance in the Ukrainian capacity to uh, militarily uh, adapt to this. Um, but a few other interesting remarks made by Sir Nick Parker, who was was our um, uh, sort of man on the ground in in Ukraine as part of this initiative. And he says that he his worry is that there is a kind of acceptance in, in, in the Western world um, that, um, you know, the, the Donbass will f- forever be, or perhaps not forever, but for, for, for a prolonged period, be a contested place, a contested um, uh, region in Europe. And that, you know, there may well be a, a contested border and things like that. And he's worried about that, that he says that... Um, Ukraine must not be allowed to be a, a constant battle, um, that there must be some definitive um, victory. And of course, he is very favourable for that victory to be on the half of the Ukrainians. And we've commented before about, um, you know, in, in the geopolitical sense, that it's absolutely vital that, um, that, that, that Putin is not able to leave this war with, with um, successes, with victories under his belt, because if he does, that will in, entirely change uh, the landscape, not only of Europe, but of um, sort of the Western... Uh, capacity to adapt to challenges from China and elsewhere. So um, a very, very interesting read that Dominic's put together. And I'd highly recommend that people that people read it and, and just how much has been going on behind the scenes that has enabled this Ukrainian success so far. Um, and it is, it's a testament to um, a far more complex Western military strategy than um, I think people have previously realised. We're in a much more complicated space than just traditional warfare these days. People used to laugh at Operation Orbital. Um, it was one of those things where a journalist would ask a, a minister, you know, uh, why aren't you doing more in Eastern Europe? And the minister would say, well, we're training troops in Ukraine. Um, uh, and the journalist would respond, yeah, you, you know, you have 100 soldiers in Kiev. What's that going to do? Um, and, th- and that's what it was, really. It was, it was about 100 soldiers. Um, you know, this wasn't a huge operation and yet they they, they managed to train 22,000 or however many uh, Ukrainian soldiers um, and Operation Orbital expanded into sort of joint exercises involving paratroopers and maritime operations so it, it was it, it wasn't a sort of it wasn't always seen as a masterstroke um, up until very recently it was seen as a sort of minor inf- intervention by the UK uh, but of course those those logistical skills um bringing the ukrainian army into line with sort of nato logistics and um, tactics um in the grand scheme of things um made a made a huge difference so it was more sort of accident than master strategy uh, but it worked out in the end and the ukrainians are super thankful for it um it's an example of what you can do actually with very sort of with a very nimble small team um, and lots of technology. Thanks, Musas. Olivia Utley, would you tell us a b- little bit about Boris Johnson's trip to Kyiv? Um, what, d- what did he do while he was there? Um, how was it received? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to, to mention is that is that it went down incredibly well. Um, 
you could see there are some fantastic videos of of Boris Johnson sort of wandering around the streets of Ukraine, um, speaking to Ukrainians who who were just incredibly grateful to for what Britain has been doing. Um, and I think it was a good opportunity for Boris Johnson to to show himself as a kind of you know global leader. The post Brexit Britain, we've always said that we're going to be this big, outward looking. Um, country that that can that's you know nimble enough to make its own decisions without the eu and i think boris johnson sort of embodied that while he was in while he was in ukraine um it was it was it was quite funny sort of seeing what was happening on on twitter i noticed um alistair campbell tweeted saying that ursula von der leyen's going to going to kiev but but boris said he wants to go but he doesn't have the guts or something and actually boris boris was already there so it was quite a good sort of um Good, good, good moment for, for Boris to prove himself as the as the kind of prime minister that that he's wanted to be and hasn't really been able to do because of COVID and etc. Um, he he, I think, I think I mean it is quite a good distraction um, watching Boris um, there because uh, it, it does sort of distract from the fact that that actually what's happening it is great that as I was saying it is great that it's safe enough for Boris to go to Kiev but the war isn't really in Kiev anymore and and Russia is regrouping it doesn't look like Putin's about to kind of you know back down and admit defeat um, and the fact that the war's moved on from Kiev doesn't really signify that it does just suggest that as we've discussed that 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 Russian forces are going to regroup around the south. Um, and and that is actually very dangerous because it could cut Ukraine off um, by in trading terms for quite a long time. The ramification could could last for a long time. Um, I mean, other things. It, it's great that that you know it is it's more than pretty much any other um, European leader has done, um, and it does sort of underline just how strong Britain's been since the start of this. So this 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 visit happened. Um, after uh, von der Leyen, Ursula von der Leyen was also in Kiev. Uh, Francis Moutaz, what what are the diplomatic um, developments that surround that surrounded these 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 visits? What what else is going on? It's interesting that you note that um, because they were two types, different types of trips to Kiev. The Ursula von der Leyen trip um, involved a lot of pressure from Zelensky for more EU support. She was she was taken to Bucha to see the massacres there, it was almost an attempt to show her just how bad, and, and to show Joseph Borrell, the EU uh, foreign minister, just how bad things were in an effort to get the EU to do more. The trip by Boris Johnson was more celebratory. It, it, we established very early on that Boris and Zelensky have an incredibly close relationship. It's one that I, I don't think we understand properly yet, but they are, it seems, in constant communication on WhatsApp. It's been reported. Um, uh, and, and their walk around Kiev was more um, celebratory, as I said. And, and there, there, was, there, there were a lot more thank yous, uh, Boris Johnson. Um, and that's because at, at the start of this war, the most important objective for Zelensky and for Ukraine was to secure Ukraine's independence and sovereignty as a nation. And to do that, you need Kiev. Um, just ignore the land battle and, and the south and the east for a moment. Um, for Ukraine to survive, it needed Kiev. And Boris's trip really signified that, that Ukraine as a nation state had survived. Um, there's a question over land. You know, Finland lost land uh, but survived. Ukraine may ultimately lose land, but it will survive. Um, and and that's, uh, it, you know, um, in part, at least, thanks to the UK's contribution. Um, 
what's what's this diplomatically is, you know, with these world leaders going to Ukraine, uh, it, it 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 it's a it's a great piece of dare I say propaganda for the Ukrainian government because it gives them authority uh, and it gives Ukraine the world's sort of stamp of recognition that Ukraine has survived um, and that the government is legitimate and the government continues and that Kiev is a city uh, that is considered safe for um, well even world leaders. Um, so that that's a very important diplomatic step and, and it just adds to Ukraine's increasing leverage in, in the negotiations with Russia. Um, I agree completely with Mutaz's um, comment on the differences between those two trips um, from um, Ursula von der Leyen and, uh, and, and Boris Johnson. I think it's worth saying that um, the former's trip um, representing the, the European Union was also um, a moment where the European Union was meant to be extending and accelerating uh, the Ukrainians uh, attempt to become a future member of the European Union. That, of course, has been something that they were promised early on in the conflict, that if they chose to apply, which is what Ukraine has done, that they would that, that they would be fast-tracked, that that would be expedited. And this was a formal attempt to uh, show that that process was ongoing. Um, so it was significant for that reason. But um, as Mises rightly says, I think that there was very much a, 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 a sense here that, that President Zelensky has still been very critical of the European Union and, and wanted to show just the extent of, you know, essentially the, the failures of the European response to uh, to to the war so far in, in contrast to, to uh, Britain's um, uh, support. Um just something else I think that's worth pointing out on the Boris trip is for all of the, the, the you know, fantastic uh, images that have been coming out of, 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 of seeing, you know, that Kiev is now uh, essentially liberated. Um, it, it's slightly a, 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 a misdemeanor to think that suddenly it's reconnected to Europe in, 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 in the way that we might expect. It took Boris we, so we hear about 14 hours to get there from Poland um, via the railways. Um, normally it would take a considerably less amount of time than that. Clearly this is a country that still is infrastructurally facing extreme challenges as a consequence of the, of the Russian war there. Of course there's also the security element. It's worth saying that Boris went in secret. Um, there was no UK media with him. All of the pictures and images that we've had have come from the Ukrainian media um, and um, it would appear that he almost went alone with a few security and 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 I think that the, the, the fact that it was kept un, uh, under wraps just shows that still this is a country that is very much under under Russian siege um, and uh, you know we, we, we this is it's, it's a very effective image as I say that, that is, it does hide certain complexities I think of, of just how much of a, of a, of a, of a threat that the, the Kiev is still is still under attack I mean, the, che- the Chechenian um, leader, who, who obviously is, is very much an ally of, of Putin, still seems to believe that Kiev will at some point be taken in this war. Um, and, well, you know, he may not have any intelligence to believe that. But clearly there are still very significant elements within um, Russian, the Russian state, but also within Russian core, Russia's core allies that believe that this war is very far from over and that any failures around Kiev that have taken place in the first phase of the war will be rectified in the second. So um, this, this war is, is by no means over yet. Thanks, Francis. Um, there's been some other diplomatic news we need, we need to talk about a little bit, I think. Uh, that's the first round of the French election that we mentioned on this podcast a few days ago because um, we were thinking about how, how does the, the war in Ukraine affect 
um, uh, national politics elsewhere in Europe and the world, and then and then what effect do the, the do those changes then have on the situation in Ukraine? I mean, it's a it's a, in, in some way, it, it's a loop, it's a circle in some ways. So um, I don't know who wants to take this, but what what happened in France and why is it relevant to what we're discussing? So I, I was in, as I said, in, in last week I was in Paris and talking to some journalists out there and just trying to get a sense of, 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 of what the significance of this vote will be on the European project and also within France. Um, we've spoken before, so I don't want to go over too much about uh, of, of the ground. People can listen in Friday's episode. Um, but essentially... The, the the significance of the vote on Sunday is that we now know who the two uh, contenders for the French presidency will be. It will be the incumbent um, Emmanuel Macron, and it will be um, um, Marine Le Pen of the of the uh, uh, of the National Front. And uh, these obviously have two sort of quite contrasting visions of France, but also particularly, and this is where it's significant to Ukraine, the European project. Um, Marine Le Pen has been very critical of the European Union in the past, um, has been more sympathetic, I think it's fair to say, of uh, the uh, Putin's repudiation of certain um, agendas of, of the European Union. Um, certain, I suppose perhaps one would, would shape it around the narrative of the culture wars. Um, and of course, that's made very uncomfortable um, uh, a very uncomfortable issue in this election is sort of photographs of her with shaking hands with Putin etc so of course if Marine Le Pen is able to win this election on the 24th and there does seem to be a a, a, a chance that that will take place at least um, then that will, will potentially have ramifications for for European unity on the point of, of Ukraine um, but just two other comments on, on France because I think the first thing to, to say is that um, Marine Le Pen is often described as a far-right politician, and of course that is true on on, on matters of um, her view on immigration and on the culture, as I say. But also she is very much a, a socialist pop- politician, from the, at least from the Western perspective in America and, uh, and, and Britain. Uh, many of the policies that she has promised are, are very highly um, interventionist in the economy and, and, and in other areas of the state. Um, and, and as a consequence of that, I think we shouldn't underestimate um, the capacity for her to potentially pull this off. You know, in France, there is a cost of living crisis like there is in much of the West now, in, in part facilitated by the Ukraine crisis, but actually preceding that for by many months and perhaps arguably even years. Um, um, so, you know, in, a, in, a, in an election that is being fought on a cost of living grounds, a politician who is from the outside, who is not uh, the incumbent and is also preaching lots of heavy interventionist policies um, around um, solving the cost of living crisis may well be able to pull it off. Although, as I say, the the numbers and statistics suggest that it will be quite challenging for her to defeat Emmanuel Macron. Um, But there's one last other comment I would make is that French history, French politics is forever shaped by this desire for revolution, transformational change, which, of course, Emmanuel Macron, to some extent, represented when he um, won the presidency last time, um, and this sort of arch conservatism. And this, you could trace this back, you know, even further into the French Revolution and uh, and the 19th century. The, these two extremes are forever battling out. And the consequence of that is that you get a France that is, to some extent, um, forms a kind of centrist coalition that preaches profound change, but 
but actually is incapable of doing anything um, that profound at all. Macron, of course, has been, I think, in many ways, a failed president in terms of what he sought to achieve. Um, he w- claimed that he would be uh, a leader that would eradicate the far right. And yet, you know, who we are, exactly a repeat of the uh, of the election last time in terms of the contenders. And so I would argue that actually, um, uh, you know, this is just a, a repeat of a consistent cycle in, in, in French politics of, 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 of extremism and conservatism battling it out and us getting neither and thus uh, a sort of gridlock um, is, is, is what occurs and in a sense France is becoming Europe's premier centrist power albeit um, indirectly um, and of course that is not necessarily a good thing you know this is a time when really one needs to have I'd argued firm leadership firm principles and economies that are able to adapt quickly and, and are not sort of bogged down in bureaucracy and yet unfortunately it would appear that France is going down the exact same path as it has in recent years and that is not necessarily going to be good for uh, for, for Europe's unity on these points strong time, regardless of who wins the presidency on the 24th of April. Let, let's put this a little bit in perspective of the Ukraine-Russia war. Uh, Mutaz and Olivia, how, how does the French election in the next two weeks affect what, what, what could happen in, in Ukraine? I think Francis's historical perspective is, is correct, but we talk about EU unity and Western unity, and Zelensky has already acknowledged that, that Western unity is, is factoring. Uh, because really we've reached uh, the edge of the comfort zone in terms of what we're willing to do with sanctions and military support. Um, uh, anything else is going to be uncomfortable. Um, uh, the EU's biggest diplomatic power, the EU's biggest military power, for the first time last night in the history of the Fifth Republic, a majority of voters in France voted for anti-system parties. These are parties that fundamentally oppose the way in which the EU's biggest military and diplomatic power is governed, right? That is a big, big shift. It's a big moment, right? It it is a a fundamental change that I I think we haven't yet clocked onto. And it may take until 2027 until we see it come fully to fruition. But basically, in in this this massive European country, you've got uh, one mainstream party that is a one-man show followed up by a series of extremist parties that are sceptical of NATO, sceptical of EU membership, and some of whom are sympathetic to Putin and what Putin stands for, uh, which, you know, in, in terms of some of Le Pen and Zamor's voters, they see him as a true conservative. Um, that, that, that's, that's a big worry. Um, uh, it, it shows that Democracy, well, uh, perhaps democracy in France is fine, but political stability in France is is overestimated at the moment. Um, and um, what does that mean for Ukraine? Well, it means that if if Le Pen wins in two weeks, you will have an EU that is basically paralysed um, on all questions. Um, it has other priorities too, um, which won't get fulfilled. Uh, so you will have even weaker support from the EU, which will be led then by Schultz, who's proven himself to be relatively lightweight uh, and, and, and someone who's Eurosceptic. Uh, if Macron wins, which is expected, he'll have a hard time governing. Uh, the parliamentary elections that, that follow will, will, will sort of um, resemble what we see today, this morning, which is a, a much more fractured society, even than... 2017, much less governable France. So you will see a a slower EU still, 
Um, and ultimately, um, that, that, that hits Western confidence. Um, and all these things benefit Vladimir Putin's efforts. Um, I, I say what we saw during the campaign, though, was what we're going to see across, I think, most of Europe, but just at, at a faster pace, which is at the start of the war, Macron's ratings shot up because he looked more presidential, uh, he was talking to Putin, he looked like a leader, and the French people respected that. He looked grand. And then Le Pen's ratings, you know, closer to the election, shot up because she was talking about the cost of living crisis. And that's at least in part as a result of rising oil prices, uh, rising energy prices because of the war in Ukraine. You're going to see that shift across the whole of Europe as everyone feels the impact of the war. Um, and that will result, I'm afraid, in not less sympathy for Ukraine, but Ukraine dropping down the list of priorities because everyone's going to be struggling. Um, and so last night was a reminder that this solidarity we've seen in the West uh, is not necessarily going to be a, a permanent phenomenon. If I could just add to something on that, um, I, I think... <sighs> I'd have a slight, I don't disagree with what Mutaz has said, but I think there's just one other perspective on this, which is that essentially it doesn't surprise me that we are seeing such fragmentation in Western politics. And of course, this has been going on for a very long time, arguably since, um, since the migrant crisis in 2015, when the European Union showed its incapacity to deal with a massive geopolitical issue that I think facilitated or at least, you know, had an influence on the tone of the Brexit debate in Britain. It, of course, it was also relevant... I think, to Trump's foreign policy. And of course, it is now very relevant to uh, to Germany and to uh, where Merkel was eventually defeated and also to obviously the weakness in the French electoral um, uh, situation as, as we've just currently been describing. But as I say, my perspective would be different because I think that the, you know, ultimately the liberal consensus has failed, right? I mean, you, you, you can see that uh, particularly on foreign policy, it has been an utter disaster in Europe. So of course, the, the European people are going to be looking elsewhere for solutions to this. I don't think it necessarily means a, a threat of the democratic um, system. I think actually it, it, it's more people looking elsewhere for for, for um, solutions to to what has been a, a complete disaster. I mean, if you look at Germany, of course, um, they are even now have been very heavily criticised today because uh, it has not. Um, it was said to have rejected an offer of repairing some tanks to send to Ukraine um, without even sort of checking how long those those uh, repairs would take. Um, and of course, they have been said to be sending the European Union has been sending 34 billion pounds worth of um, sorry um, euros worth of funds to Russia for their energy and gas during this crisis and has only sent a billion in terms of military hardware to Ukraine um, so this is a fundamental failure on so many areas and we've also got the cost of living crisis as well which is now permeating across the western uh, western world that in part is due to the lockdown policies which um, have of course you know whatever one makes of them there are now a lot of um, criticisms about certain decisions that were made during the pandemic and the economic damage that that has triggered, um, not only in Britain, but across the Western Hemisphere. And these, all of these, these sort of pigeons are coming home to, uh, coming home to roost. And so it doesn't surprise me that, that we are in the situation where, where the, the established uh, political parties, like traditionally one would see in France, 
are, are, are nowhere to be seen and, and in course in Germany as well because fundamentally their project has failed their complacency in the last 30 years has led to an unmitigated crisis and atrocities being committed on the European doorstep and so um, you know we're, we're, people are no doubt going to be looking for anti-establishment parties and particularly when they're feeling it at home as well in their own wallets so I think this is only the beginning of a, of a transformational shift and it's up to the political elites of the West to adapt to what the people want it shouldn't be the other way around Thank you, Francis. Um, just to start thinking about wrapping up, um, there are quite a few notes, Francis, I've seen you've, you've put in about, about Russia um, and the economic uh, crisis that Russian people are facing as well. Muse um, has Olivia and Francis. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was reading one very interesting piece in, in The Telegraph this morning, actually, by, um, by a Russian expert, a lecturer in, in Russian at the University of Oxford, who was saying uh, it's not exactly about the economic impact, but it all, all ties together. Um, what's going on in Russia, which we're not really hearing about over here, is that the state media has gone into overdrive, basically, um, in for, for quite a long time. It, it was it was thought that uh, there wasn't going to be invasion, even in Russia, it, it was thought there wasn't going to be invasion of Ukraine, because um, they weren't really hearing anything about it. Um, whereas just before the annexation of Crimea, um, there was all sorts of sort of state propaganda churning out uh, material that, that persuaded the Russian people um, that, that Putin would be right to do that. Whereas this time, we didn't really see that. And now it sort of feels um, as though they're making up for lost time. So she watches quite a lot of Russian TV, this this lecture, and, and she was saying that, that that's just basically all you can see now on Russian TV is extremely heavy-handed propaganda about how, you know, to, to, to rid Ukraine of Nazism, we have to destroy the whole idea of the country, um, and all of the, you know, so many stupid conspiracy theories about about. Russians killing their own troops in Bucha or whatever to 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 make to make Ukraine to make Russia look bad. It, it it's you know mad stuff being pumped out all the time, um, and Russian people are watching it all the time. And so she's she's worrying about the idea that that actually Putin sort of unleashed this whirlwind that he can't now really control. Um, State TV is pumping out all this stuff. The Russian people are watching it and obviously getting more and more angry at, at Ukraine and and feel as though, of course, Ukraine must be ended. That's the only way for, for, for Russia to, to take the next step forward in its in its future. Um, so you feel like the Russian people are becoming becoming sort of more and more furious and, and harder and harder to, to, to kind of rein in. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've thought for quite, we've sort of hoped for quite a long time that um, as soon as the economic impacts start hitting Russians properly, which obviously they are beginning to to now, uh, the Russian people might might sort of turn on Putin and there'd be some kind of coup or Putin and Putin would be ousted from power in some way um, by kind of these young Russians who, who are quite Western in their outlook um, and who don't much like Putin. But there's also the, the 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 other side of that coin, which is that the the angrier they get and that the, the worse their lives get in Russia, um, the the more furious they become with with Ukraine and, and the more kind of bloodlust there is. And actually, um, Russians' lives getting far far worse means means that means that peace becomes ever less attainable. And it, the ladder for for um, Putin to climb down gets sort of longer and longer. So I think that's quite an interesting way of looking at it and quite worrying too. Absolutely. Thanks. Um, thanks, Olivia. Just to say quickly, if you want to hear a, a Russian perspective um, 
on the war and very much linking with with everything Olivia is saying about what Russians are seeing on on their TV and on their on their news programs. We did interview Natalia Vasilyeva, who's the Telegraph's Moscow correspondent. Uh, I believe that's last Wednesday's podcast, and she she gives a very very interesting and and chilling account of 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 um, opposition in Russia and as 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 you're saying, Olivia, what, what exactly Russians are seeing. So if you're listening and you want to hear more about that, I would suggest going going to your podcast apps, finding Ukraine the latest, and listening to our interview with Natalia Vasilyeva. I don't have it in front of me. I believe it's last Wednesday. A lot of Russians still think the the the, the pain they're feeling at the moment is temporary, and and this tends to have happen with sanctions. I I, mean, I I I used to hear stories from my uh, family in Sudan, um, which was under sanctions for twenty years. Right at first, you have this rally around the flag effect. People see it as an act of war, and tank, imposing sanctions these days um, on the scale they've been imposed on Russia. Um, it is an act of war, really. And and you saw people value around Putin. Um, and the second thing is that the, uh, people's natural instinct is to make themselves believe that it's all temporary. It's all going to go away. So you, you go to malls and you see signs on shops that can't open because they can't import the clothes they're selling. And the signs will say, reopening soon. Uh, we're out of stock, but we're coming back. Um, um, and there's not this recognition that no, 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 this is your new way of life. You need to adapt to this much degraded uh, social life, this much degraded economic activity. There's no sense of that. Um, uh, it's almost like the start of the pandemic here, right? A lot of people thought we'd be in lockdown for three weeks. Uh, they were willing to tolerate those three weeks. It was three months after that. They were willing to tolerate it. I think if people were told you'd be in lockdown for two years at the start of lockdown, uh, they'd be, there'd be a lot more friction. Um, and so we're seeing something similar in Russia at the moment. But ultimately, people do wake up to the reality. It, it, some, it takes years, usually, but they do wake up. And when they realise that actually their lives and their children's lives are permanently degraded, it's not going to improve. Those clothes, those McDonald's, you know, those Western stuff, they're not coming back. Things deteriorate very quickly. Um, so we, we shouldn't expect that anytime soon. But, you know, don't expect sanctions to have an immediate effect on public opinion. It takes time. Um, uh, but, it, but it does get more and more dangerous um, uh, for, 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 for the president or, or the government uh, the longer it goes on for. If I could just make one comment, on, I completely agree with that. I think that's a really fascinating um, uh, comparison to make with 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 COVID and 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 the impact of of, of that on the Western sort of mentality and the politicians and uh, sorry and the public as, as well. Um, I just wanted to say something on picking up on what Olivia said about the severity of the sanctions in Russia. Um, so today we've heard that Russia is facing a historic sovereign default um, after the U.S. Treasury blocked the country's dollar payments. So. The last time that the Russian economy was forced to default on foreign debt was, very significant date in Russian history, 1917 uh, in the Bolshevik Revolution. And of course, this is this is. Uh, I'm not saying that that you know we're going to have a similar thing in in uh, in Russia for the reasons that Mutaz just highlighted, at least not in the short term. But um, it's those kind of historical parallels that make um, so we understand Vladimir Putin very jumpy. Almost his entire career has been built on preventing there being any chance of of um, attempts to overthrow him in Russia. That he he ra- would rather go uh, over um, be over. Um, 
uh, estimating the risk than underestimating the risk. And so those kind of parallels, I think, will, will, will be a cause of um, a cause of concern. And of course, the, the Russian finance minister has come out and been highly critical of, of the sanctions policy, saying that this is an unnecessary default, that it's only happening because they've not got access to the funds rather than any real profound vulnerability in the Russian economy. But even so, I think it is, it is um, significant that we're starting to see the sanctions having quite significant effects on, on the way that the Russian economy is viewed around the world, despite what the ruble price is, which is, is currently at levels that were um, as sort of high as they were before, before the conflict. Um, just whilst we're on the subject of Russia, I think it's, it's, this is a question, and I'd be interested to hear everyone else's takes on this, but um, I was reading a, a, a comment put out by um, Dr. M- Dr. Jade McGlynn, who writes for us in The Telegraph, I believe she wrote for us yesterday, and she was saying that why do we um, still, when we're reporting the incidents in in uh, in, in in Mariupol and elsewhere, when we which where we know uh, that atrocities are taking place caused by the Russian forces, why do we still report what the Kremlin's line is on this? You know that they that they deny this. You know you wouldn't ask, uh, you know, Islamic State what their line is on uh, on attacks taking place. We would dismiss that out of hand. And I think it's it's a really interesting point that she raises. I think it's right that we do report that. Um, because it speaks to what the Russians are hearing, what the Russian mentality is on the conflict, even if they are lies. I don't believe it's spreading sort of propaganda. Um, but I, And I think it also speaks to perhaps a belief deeply ingrained maybe that, that at some point Russia will come back into the international community, that we haven't given up on, on the Russian state or the Russian people yet, that, that they are still a part enough of the international community that we should still report what the Kremlin says as being a source of, of, of some credibility, regardless how, how thin that is. Um, and I think that's probably for the best, that we, we don't completely make um, Russia a, a sort of North Korea pariah state, even if at this present moment what they're pumping out is is is, is clearly ludicrous. Um, but I'd be interested to hear other people's perspectives on that, because I thought it was an interesting and thought-provoking, thought-provoking point. It, it, it is interesting. I, I tend to agree with you. I think, I think we probably should report what the Kremlin says. And, and, and it doesn't it doesn't do Ukraine too much harm because increasingly we see just how ridiculous uh, the Kremlin's claims are. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, I don't think the Kremlin cares anymore how ridiculous they sound, uh, but it's, it's good for people to sort of use their own initiative to sort of realise that, that these people are, you know, they're, re- they're really nasty buggers and, and, and they don't really care about facts. Um, as for sanctions, by the way, the, the only economic reality that matters at the moment is how much money are we giving Putin to uh, spend on, on his military. Uh, in, in my view, those are the only sanctions that matter. Um, and, and, and all that money, or most of it, comes from natural resources, gas and oil. Um, uh, what are the sanctions on gas and oil? Um, uh, and clearly, we're nowhere near where we need to be in terms of, 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 of that. Uh, we're still in terms of the, the EU is still buying up billions of dollars of Russian national resources, which goes straight into the Kremlin's coffers, which goes straight into, you know, uh, tanks and bombs uh, uh, um, and uh, perhaps even air defense systems for Serbia and so on. Um, that's, that's the only thing that matters. Um, and, and ironically, that's the only area really that, that outstanding where we, we've done very little. 
Thank you, Mises, and thank you, Francis. Um, I think we probably need to start wrapping up. So can I have all of your final thoughts and just what to look for in the coming days? Um, I would just say that uh, we are yet to see the true extent of the uh, renewed Russian assault in the Donbass. I think we can expect that this is going to be, as, as Mises was saying earlier on, a particularly grim kind of war, one that we have not seen on European soil since the Second World War um, in terms of tanks and infantry um, attacking each other with full force um, rather than, as we were saying earlier on, more of a defensive war, a guerrilla war that was being fought in the early phases of this. Um, And so I think uh, that when we start to see some of the pictures some of the analysis of that i think the true scale of this conflict um, will will come home to us um and i think in that sense we've, we've been debating uh, on this podcast for some time now whether you know the, the negotiations with russia would would suddenly um lead to a ceasefire and whether as part of that arrangement that um, the Donbass, Luhansk, Donetsk, Crimea would be given to Russia more permanently um, in exchange for peace. That is now looking increasingly unlikely. I think Ukraine is seeking to go for total victory over the Russian forces and it remains to be seen whether they are actually capable of that. And we forget, of course, and I know it's sort of rather alarmist to, 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 to highlight this, but we've commented before on Putin's uh, capacity for ruthlessness, his his lack of fear in threatening the use of nuclear weapons. If things really, really get dire, he could, you know, seriously try and escalate this war um, with use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Um, we shouldn't underestimate that as a possible threat here. Um, and so um, it's just something to be sensitive to that I think many of us are starting to get into this sort of frame of mind of thinking, oh, well, it's looking now very likely that Ukraine are going to, to seize back almost all of their lost territory and, and, and score an um, incredible historic victory against Vladimir Putin's forces. It's way too early to say that because, unfortunately, Putin still has a lot of um, cards left to play. And um, let's hope he doesn't use them. But if he does, we are going to be in a completely different phase and one that I think will be even more concerning than what we have seen so far. I hope I'm wrong, but um, we, we, we are yet to know. Um, I think I'd say uh, keep an eye on what's going on in France, because as we've discussed, the outcome of this election really matters. And it isn't just whether Macron or Le Pen uh, wins the election. It's also about about um, about voter numbers, because we saw in the first round extremely low turnout. And I think there's actually quite a danger in, in Macron winning, but but winning narrowly and with a very disillusioned um, electorate, uh, because then you see the sort of rising voter apathy, and that apathy can quite easily sort of morph into anger. And, and as Moutaz says, there, there, are, there are quite a lot of uh, French people who are voting for, for Zemmour and Le Pen who, who, see, who are quite sympathetic to Vladimir Putin. And if those voters are feeling you know, disaffected and angry, um, then that's really going to sort of undermine uh, a second Macron term and uh, could play havoc with the, with the stability of the EU, with NATO, uh, etc. So in some ways that could, be the, that could be the worst outcome. But I think keep an eye. Yeah, I, I agree with both Niv and Francis. And I'm afraid it's, it's probably going to be just as depressing um, but uh, w- one country that's that's really interesting to me is Lithuania, which is taking a, a much bolder approach to supporting Ukraine. You know, it's talking about repairing uh, Ukrainian tanks on Lithuanian soil, training Ukrainian troops on Lithuanian soil. Uh, it looks like it's about to take a much more active role um, um, in the conflict, um, and perhaps it, it can become 
uh, along with Poland, a sort of uh, an important sort of middle state between the West and Ukraine, um, where you know we can hopefully put resources and and those resources can end up making a difference on the, the battlefield. So, so keep an eye on Lithuania. Um, everything that's happening there is very exciting. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe.